Welcome to the FML Podcast, the podcast on a mission to uncover actionable insights, explore the latest trends, and to catalyze your fintech's growth. Join Growth Gorilla's founder and managing director, Shamir Sajdev, and some of fintech's hardest-hitting marketers and leaders. Welcome everyone to this episode of the FML Podcast. Today, uh, we're joined by Julia Lucas, who's our uh, Head of Influence Marketing here at Growth Gorilla. Hi everyone. Yeah, thanks for coming and joining us today. Do you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself and um, I suppose your journey so far? Currently, I'm with Growth Gorilla. I don't know if you've heard of this, guys. Um, they're quite cool. Bit of a, you know, growth agency for fintechs. But prior to that, um, I've been working in the marketing slash influencer space for Five to six years now, I've done a lot of stuff in entertainment, music, fashion, uh, food, and then I decided to move to more tech-based stuff and fintech came about. So here we are. Um, I like to say I used to do influencer marketing when it was all, you know, forest. There wasn't a lot of that back in the days and now it seems to be what everyone talks about. So here we are. I said the influencer marketing space, it's really blossomed over you know, over the course of the year, really. What do you think has been the catalyst behind that? I think there's been a shift. I think when influencer marketing first came about, everyone was kind of besotted by it because of the results. It was a new way of advertising, let's say, the fact that you could pay someone to talk about your brand in an unconventional way till then, and you got a bunch of sales out of that. It was quite amazing. That started to change because obviously it got saturated. And more recently, with UGC and with creators really becoming small production teams themselves, it's shifted again into what you can actually get out of the business. And so I think new interest is coming out of that sphere as opposed to what influencer marketing used to be. Kind of sort of expanding upon what you, what, what you mentioned about that sort of, you know, the evolution of influencer marketing. It's kind of always existed in the background. Um, you know, YouTube's been there for a while. You know, creators like Mr. Beast have been, you know, been around for a long, long time now. But it's suddenly come into light um, over, I would say, the last sort of 18 months, 24 months, where you've actually got well-known brands really leveraging, you know, creators and influencers. Do you think TikTok um, had a part to play in that? Definitely TikTok's changing uh, the game in the sense of, now you see creators who reach much bigger audiences, but they're not as well known as you'd see in the Instagram, YouTube era, let's say. What you used to see before is a concentration of creators who are really popular. And so if you wanted to host a big campaign, you would go straight to those creators because there was only a certain amount of them. Now, what you see these days is creators that reach such big audiences but perhaps you don't know the names themselves but you still have that rich with tiktok because the way tiktok works is a bit different it's not so much about who you follow but the topics that you're interested in and what you you research and so you go on your for you page and you're constantly scrolling and next thing you know someone that has been having 5k views all of a sudden has over a million that didn't used to happen unless you already had a million followers you, you weren't going to reach those numbers um obviously you have the occasional viral content but with tiktok you have a much higher chance of becoming viral and viral content seems to be what picks up more so than the influencer themselves and so with that you see the rise of ugc creators or the rise of a bigger conglomerate of creators themselves and more options to go with and more niche down creators as well as opposed to someone that can just talk about everything Let, let's let's talk a little bit about those sort of niche creators and, and and kind of like talent identification when i sort of initially sort of started looking into the influencer space and obviously focusing on the fintech sector i kind of had a view that we would be doing a lot more work with you know actual you know or just focusing on the on the finfluencer space but the one thing that i've learned you know since you've joined is that actually it's more about finding the audiences that, or finding the, the influences that fit the audiences that we're, we're going after. Can you kind of like talk us a little bit more about identifying the right, the right talent and the right creators for your brand? That's interesting because 
I think people have this idea that if you work in a fashion brand, you instantly have to go for a fashion creator. Or if you work in fintech, you go for the influencers because they know what they're talking about. And that's true. But when you're talking about a service, you're selling a way of living, right? So you don't necessarily need someone, although that can definitely add to it, especially depending on what kind of service we're talking about, if it's super niche or not. But you want to make sure you're adding to that audience's way of living. So the way I go about it is I do a lot of research around the audience first. And then I see what kind of creators and what kind of content they're interacting with. And based off of that, I find my influencers. So if we're talking about Gen Z and millennials on TikTok, um, what are those people looking for? What are the keywords? What are the hashtags? You start looking for those. You see what creators are posting content around that. And then you see how the audience is interacting with it. Are they just interested in the creator because they're funny and because they've got a nice face to look at? Or are they actually interacting with the content and what that person has to say? If the answer is yes, and they're actually adding to that audience's needs, then you have your creator that even if they don't necessarily talk about fintech, maybe they talk about budgeting and living in the city and how to navigate being in your 20s and building your finances. And, and they are not a financial advisor. They're just someone sharing their experience. But there you go. Maybe that's the right person. I think, um, especially for, for new brands sort of entering the influencer space, is, is it much more easier to see this with um, e-commerce brands and D2C brands where they'll get an influencer to grab a product, say how amazing it is, maybe get a little bit creative with it. That's obviously one way to, to leverage you know, a creator or an influencer. But I suppose you know, there's only so many times an influencer can, can promote your product explicitly like that. How do you get the most out of a creator and therefore how do you leverage their audience and, and work their audience to get the most out of that relationship? This goes back to what we were first talking about. I think gone are the days where you could place a product or even a service if we're talking about FinTech in most cases in the hands of a creator and go like, sell this, say it's good, talk about it and tell people to buy into it. It doesn't work anymore. You have to actually work into long-term partnerships where the influencer naturally showcases the use of that product slash service and how it benefits them on a day-to-day -day basis. Now you can do that in various ways. I say, if you were to split a campaign into dedicated and integrated videos, probably the best way to go about it. So you actually show that creator interacting with the service. So you would then show those in integrated videos, but then you also have the dedicated ones to explain a bit more about how it works and obviously the USPs and everything that you need to know before you buy into a product. So to your point, obviously, around, yeah, gone are the days of just, you know, asking a creator to sort of just explicitly promote your product. As you said, it's all about building long-term relationships with those creators. One of the areas that, that gets a little bit of confusion when we're talking to our clients is kind of that, that point around talent management versus talent relationships. Would you mind just sort of talking us through the differences there? I think people confuse the two because they think that talent management is what, in fact, what talent relationships are. Uh, with talent management, you definitely have agencies that do take that route, but that would be when you actually manage the talent. So you would be speaking for the talent at the same time that you're speaking for the client. And I find that a bit complicated because sometimes there's a clash of interest there. You're trying to benefit the influencer at the same time that you're trying to benefit the client. Uh, it can work in favor of the two, but there's intricacies. Now, talent relationships, what it means, that obviously you will manage the campaign and what the talent is doing during that campaign, but the, you don't manage the talent itself outside of the campaign scope. Um, so it's based on the relationship uh, that you build with creators over time. And the thing about agencies is that you're not only working with them on that campaign solely. I have worked with a lot of creators around various different brands and you end up crisscrossing those campaigns and it works really well because you create a bond with those creators, they're people at the end of the day. So it's about managing those relationships and really nurturing them and making sure 
you're catching up with those creators outside of the campaign scope as well, constantly being updating on what they're up to, what their agendas look like, what their plans for the future are. Sometimes just by knowing their content schedule, I sometimes think of campaigns that will work really well for uh, some of my clients that I hadn't thought of before. Um, and then I'm like, oh, you're talking about that in your video? That's actually an amazing topic for us to integrate acts into. Why don't we pitch that to them and see what happens? So talent relationships is more about that, uh, managing the talent over what they're going to do during the campaign, but keeping those relationships outside of campaign scopes. But we are not managing the talent. We, you know, actively here at Grice Gorilla, we, we decided that we, we weren't going to do any talent management for to completely avoid that conflict of interest, which means that we can kind of go into campaigns for clients with almost a clean slate and bring in the creators that are, you know, suited to them. But one of the other reasons we decided to enter the influencing creator space was that, you know, there are influencers, you know, there are fintechs running influencer campaigns, um, you know, at, at the moment, but it wasn't specifically an agency that was focused on the fintech space. You know, hugely we're going to be biased towards this, but do you think there is a benefit for having a niche agency managing your your influencer activity for you? Effectively, you know, an agency like Castus that's specifically focused on on fintech. Obviously, you can get great results with agencies that are not that niche as well. Like, let's not lie about it. But I think where it kind of differentiates it is when you work with agencies that cover all realms. Usually what you're going to find is that they have a bit of an e-commerce mentality. I see that a lot. Like, Let me place this product in there. And then they come up with incredible concepts. But I think when you're talking about fintech, you're talking about something so specific and that it's a service at the end of the day. Why would you use a certain card? Why would you invest with certain company? Why would you buy or lend or crypto? It's a different type of product to sell. It's not your usual, let's create a fashion campaign and have X influencer wear it and they go bunch of sales. <laughs> um, and I think from a perspective of integrating everything that we do as well, uh, since I joined, I've learned so much from CRM and paid and how we can integrate those. So if you were to have an agency that does it all together and can really have those pieces conversely, I think that that's where you get a win-win, which other agencies probably wouldn't be able to do in the sense of if you were to go with an influencer agency that does influencer only, but for all realms of that space. My take on why FinTech and, and you know, even financial services is so niche is ultimately you're promoting a you know, an intangible product, you know, you're putting the product into the palm of the hand of your users and then asking them to then do something with it. And it's a completely different mindset. And I think that leaks into influencer as well. I kind of want to talk about just sort of pulling together a campaign and developing strategy and managing it at a very, very high level, you know, because it's, it's difficult to obviously do this without obviously, you know, a specific brief or anything at all like that. What are the key things about developing an influencer strategy for a fintech brand to make it a campaign that, that delivers and is high performing? Make sure that, first of all, the influencers are very comfortable with that platform, service, whatever it may be. You don't want it to sound unauthentic or just because there are big bucks involved, they're going to buy into it, but they're not going to fully trust or believe in that platform. Make sure you are nurturing those relationships in the first place and that they really understand what it is about and make sure they truly become ambassadors for it that they would in fact use that product beyond just advertising it i think that that's the most important thing because tangible products as you were just talking about it's a lot easier for for you to place that in the hands of someone and have them make it seem like they actually care about it like, look at me putting this eyeshadow. It's amazing. Like, that's a lot easier to do. But with a service, it's a bit different. And then two, I think you always have to have a mixture of people that are going to bring large audiences into it so we can really work on that awareness piece. But also smaller creators, and this is what we were talking about, the industry shifting and UGC or smaller followings, but great engagement. 
really build those communities around every single campaign. So then you can start funneling from awareness to really getting those leads eventually. And it's important to keep in mind as well that every influencer campaign starts with a great piece of awareness. I don't think you're going to go into an influencer campaign and next thing you know, you get 100 leads straight away and everyone is signing up for it. Unless you're a very well-known brand and you know, you're just doing an influencer piece because you can skip that part. It's about getting people to sign up to it. If you're first getting into the market, you need to get people to trust it first and see why they would want to use it and how that could fit into their lives. So start building from awareness. Make sure you have the creators that are really going to spread the word about it in large scale, but also that you do have those creators involved that are going to be trusted and that have really strong communities around them that participate in the conversation. And then honestly, I think by doing that, you've got a good campaign. There's no way to go wrong about it. Have you seen any fintech brands getting it wrong? You don't have to name and shame, um, but uh, I'm curious as to, you know, what have you seen go wrong, you know, and, 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 you know, what do you think the ramifications are of that? Can I say where I've seen it gone really well? We'll start on a on a happy note and then we'll kind of decline it. Like, don't do that. <laughs> I think completely different campaigns and completely different markets as well. Because uh, this is something else, I think, going back a little bit into why a specialized agency could work best is that we understand how fintech works in different markets. And the same goes for influencer. So the influencer industry is very different here. It's very different than South America. I'm Brazilian, so I see what goes on there all the time. And it's a bit different. I think in Brazil, Will and Nubank are doing incredible influencer pieces. They have very large uh, creators and even celebrities uh, working on those campaigns, all social media based, not um, TV per se, but they're doing really well into they're creating great campaigns around awareness pieces and having people really integrate those services into their everyday. And it's a constant. It's not like, oh, you see someone posting about it for a month and that's it. And I think they're doing a really great uh, job around that. And then here in the UK, Starling did a great job where they, <laughs> I didn't really realize they were involved with it until I realized they were involved with it, which was kind of great. They sponsored, I believe, this YouTube series with Jack Harris called Seat at the Table. It was a big piece on environmental issues. Jack Harris used to be a YouTuber back in the days when, you know, there was that great attraction around British YouTubers. He used to do just your usual entertainment piece and then got out of it, became a filmmaker, um, an environmentalist of sorts. And he did this really big series in partnership with YouTube where he interviewed Barack Obama and like incredible personalities um, to discuss environmental issues and Starling sponsored it and they came into the conversation in one of the episodes I can't remember who installed joined the conversation but instead of just having Jack go and talk about Starling and why he likes Starling that was never mentioned but next thing you know Starling is in the conversation and they're talking about environmental issues on a Skype call or Zoom call, can't remember what platform they use. And Starling is talking about how, what actions they're taking to be more environmentally friendly and what they do. And they got a lot of traction based off of that because people bought into that idea before they bought into anything else. And I thought that that was an amazing piece because they sold their product without even having to sell it. And I think a lot of the times it's about that selling an idea that people will buy into because they can relate to that as opposed to here's a service. This is why we work. <laughs> um, so I think that that works really well. And the more brands understand those pieces, um, and the more we can implement those into campaigns, the better results they're going to see long term. Now, what you don't want to do is not be regulated. Reach out to a whole lot of creators beforehand before you launch. Have them talk about your brand. Yeah. And next thing you know, you know, you have to start 
deleting everything and asking people to shut it down. So, so we're talking about a specific brand here, aren't we? That that's um, you know they got they, they were a little bit naughty. They pushed out loads of activity via creators. They weren't regulated. The FCA gave them a slap on the wrist, and um, yeah, it, it, it was probably yeah. you know, a case study on how not to. But I don't think it's just influencer marketing. I think it was just a case study on how to, you know, not launch a brand. You know, they, I mean, I think they just yeah, um, before they got started. I'm not going to say who it was. If you work in fintech, if you're interested in fintech, you know who we're talking about. I had very close touch with that campaign because they asked me to work on it um, and to be a part of it. I never signed the NDA. They asked me to sign. So technically, I could talk about it, but ethically, I won't. The thing is, I think they also had that old mentality of let's just place the product into the hands of a bunch of influencers and people will buy into it because they're going to see all these influencers with the cards swiping here, swiping there, and people are just going to buy into it. And I think that was their first mistake to think that they could launch themselves that way just by placing their product into the hands of a bunch of influencers with big followings. You have to work around your product a lot before you do that. And I did see a lot of huge pages post about it. And it even got me thinking, I was like, oh, should I, should I have worked on that? I was like, maybe, maybe my feeling was wrong. Maybe it was a good campaign, but then I was right. Um, yeah, I feel like they um, wanted to have an influencer approach to the Monzo strategy. Because what Monzo did that was quite clever is that they made it exclusive before it was even a thing. Remember when Monzo first came about? And they, you had to have a referral to get into it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was this thing like, oh, what are, what are these Monzo cars? They're ma- I think said brand tried to do the same by having influencers show it first, make it exclusive, make it premium to then launching. Idea behind that, it's okay. Needed some work around it, but it's okay. But there was no perspective as to what that was. And on the contract, it said, we just want you to post X amount of stories and X amount of posts per month showing the card and having having a link so people know where to go. That was it. There was no interactive piece. There was no motive. There was no understanding from the creative part of what that was actually about, which is the first flag for me and why I talk so much about nurturing the relationships and making sure your creators really understand what that service is about and how it could benefit them. That was none of that. And that to me was a red flag. And I looked into it. I was like, "Mm, this could go downhill very easily. And it did. Plus, they just offered people shares into their company, which I thought was a bit dodgy. Yeah. Um, Don't do that. (laughs) I I think at a high level, what we're saying is is that I think if you're going to build a, you know, if you're going to run influencer activity, it's about, a, building relationships and thinking about a longer-term play as to how you want to create something with that creator as opposed to just getting them to just hard sell your product. Yeah, 100%. Brands talk about so much as well. I want creators to be ambassadors for my brand, and that's all great, but are you interacting with that creator? Are you showing yourself to be as much of their supporter as you want them to be your supporter? You've got to make sure those relationships are built. Otherwise, it becomes just about financial gain and they're not going to do as great of a job as they could. I think that leads nicely to just talking about trust as well, right? Because then it, then it becomes a two-way street. So for context, we had a round table um, with, how, you know, with a good number of CMOs and, and uh, you know, Julie and I were there. Influencer was a topic of conversation amongst the majority. And I think a couple of things came out of that, which was quite interesting. I think one of those things was... Actually, I think, all, I think all of the bits tie into this. Going back to the point around getting a, a creator to, to promote your product, that seems to be kind of like the, the I suppose, the, the understanding. And obviously what you're saying, Julie, is obviously developing you know, longer-term relationships um, and then having that to create the awareness. And then earlier on, we spoke about what, you know, a particular client and we were saying, you know, this particular client needs to focus on that middle of funnel and, and bottom of funnel content, which is effectively building trust um, and I think, you know, it, you might be repeating yourself a little bit, 
can you kind of just sort of talk us through what top of the funnel, middle of the funnel and bottom of the funnel content looks like from an influencer creator perspective and then how a brand can effectively pull that together and, and, and build an effective campaign out of that? When we're talking about awareness pieces and top of the funnel campaigns, it's a mixture of what I discussed previously, uh, making sure you do have those creators with either a very strong reach or a very strong following. Those the, the two are not necessarily the same thing, but by having a great mixture of both, you're going to reach those audiences. It's not that complicated, really. And then making sure you have enough dedicated pieces there so that people definitely know who you're talking about and um, what that brand slash company is then as you get into middle and bottom of the funnel we start doing integrated pieces more and more and the really creative campaigns for example if we're talking about a travel card you could have an influencer host the travel series sponsored by s and you see the the card placed there every every now and again but it's not about that but at that point the audience is already aware of what that company is and so it's just a reminder and it's like oh i'm actually booking a trip next summer and i need a card that doesn't charge me fees for converting while i'm there so oh yeah fantastic you don't think twice you already know and it just reminds you and obviously those are much more delicate campaigns as well they're a little bit more thought out uh, a little bit more planned yeah yeah exactly whereas with your first awareness campaign you can just it, it's about testing what influencers work would because sometimes some influencers work in theory because they've got a great reach great engagement the audience matches but you find that actually it doesn't convert the audience is not talking it happens just like with paid where you can put a bunch of money and have the right copy and the right creative go into it and it still doesn't convert and you need to test out uh, until it does the same happens in influencer marketing and your top of the funnel campaigns. Once you got that sorted out, that's when you can start narrowing it down and really working on those creative pieces that will convert. It's a great segue to talking about tracking, reporting, optimization. You know, using paid again as an example, it's super easy for us to do, you know, to, to, to track performance there. You know, between platforms like Apps Flyer, um, Heap and uh, UTM parameters and all of that good stuff. We can determine where a user's coming in from. We know what channel's working. We know what creative's working. How do you do that with influencer when you've got half a dozen influencers promoting and talking about your product? How do you know which one's performing the best? How do you track that? You know, how do you report on that? There's different ways to go about it and certainly different ways to go about it in various stages of the campaign. So when we're talking about awareness, it's very visual. If you see reach and you see conversation around it, it means it's working, right? If you go into an influencer content piece and you see loads of comments on that video, but every comment has to do with what the influencer is wearing and not what they're actually talking about when they're talking about a fintech brand, perhaps it's not, it's not lending. Do, do we then change the creator or do we change the approach? Maybe the creator is still right, but we haven't quite nailed down the content piece. So the awareness part is quite straightforward is the content performing well and what's the engagement around it obviously with campaigns paid campaigns specifically you have access to the creators inside always make sure you put that into contracts so that you can access it and so you, you'll see more insightful metrics there as well but i think from an awareness perspective we could we could put utm links then we could put uh, referral codes but it won't convert straight away so that's perhaps not the best way to go about tracking it. Now, when you go into the more middle and bottom of the funnel uh, levels of the campaign, then you can put those tools into that to really track who's performing and where those leads are coming from. You mentioned about people commenting about what's going on in, in, in the video and all of that sort of stuff. A bit of sort of sideways step, but, but not a million miles away. Just want to talk a little bit about um, fraud detection and, and a little bit around that. now. You know, obviously you and I working together, you know, I'm very, very aware of the steps that you go through to determine whether or not an influencer is actually, you know, 
getting the reach and the engagement that they say they're getting. Could you like give us your sort of mental checklist as to sort of what you look for to detect fraud? Maybe fraud's a bit of a strong word, but yeah, you know, what are you going through? What are you looking at? Yeah, we, we call it fraud detection because there's actual tools that you can use to see um, if an influencer's audience is legitimate or not. However, what those are going to do is they're going to detect bots, right? So and if, if an influencer is paying for followers and likes, because you can do that, uh, or even comments, automated comments, uh, those tools are going to detect that. That's very automated. Uh, there's no secret to that. However, what it doesn't detect is engagement groups, which is what we call when influencers take part on Facebook, Instagram groups, uh, big lot of DMs, <laughs> uh, where influencers interact with each other and make sure they're constantly engaged and that they always have comments on their photos to make sure that their content is showing up on people's feeds all the time because the less engagement you get, the less your content gets distributed. So I can see where they're coming from, but then what happens is it's hard to track legitimate engagement um, because those automated tools are not going to do that because the pages are real. The creators are real. They're actually interacting with each other, but they're doing it based on what they're gaining from it. And they all know what they're doing. Luckily, I've worked on both sides of that industry, so I can spot that very easily. And I know I can see who's talking to who. So once I've already done the automated tools and gone rid of the bots and I know exactly who's at least legitimate, I manually go into their comment section and I see who's actually commenting on it. Is, is this just a follower? Are they also an influencer? How many times do they comment on that person's page? Are they actually interested into what's going on? Are they following the brands that this influencer talks about as well? Or are they just also following a bunch of influencers that are mutual between the two? And I can easily spot what's going on there. So it's a bit of a mixture there. I refer to all of this as hygiene factors, right? You know, making sure, you know, checking the, you know, the engagement and, and you know, checking all the legis- legitimacy of, the, you know, the creator and, and what they're doing. And I kind of, it kind of leads us on to talking about, you know, almost like contracting and licensing, really, you know, what, what needs to be done there. As you know, Julia, I'm, I'm a tad pedantic about this because sort of, I've seen contracts that some of the creators receive from, from very, very well-known brands. And I remember seeing one. It didn't even have the channel. It had the name of the influencer, but it didn't specify the channel that the influencer had a you know, post on. Um, Do you know what's really funny? Go for it. Talking about it. I've seen, I've seen that happen time and time again. And it just says on Instagram, mm. doesn't say, doesn't specify what channel, what page on Instagram. The handle or anything. Cre- yeah. Creator has a personal page or a side page and their main page for what reasons I don't know why they would ever do that, but they go and they post on the wrong page and the contract doesn't specify which one. So you're still obliged to pay them because the content is there and it's posted <laughs> by who. And next thing you know, it has no reach. So be careful. I think both you and I are quite pedantic about this and you're being very, very sort of specific as to what the expectations and deliverables are from each of the creators, but then also at the same time, you know, what are the expectations and deliverables from the brand as well? But that kind of leads us on to sort of talking about you know, licensing, who owns what, and then what, you know, what's the benefits around that? And, and, you know, why, I suppose, brands need to be aware of this. And, you know, again, you know, what, what, what are your sort of like, high level or, or, you know, your, your key thoughts around, you know, ensuring or, or making sure you've got sort of a licensing piece in place, you know, with a creator? There's actually a lot of little bits around that that you need to consider. First of all, when influencer marketing started 10, 12 years ago, it was no man's land. And in a lot of ways, it still is because you see influencers of various different sizes charging various different fees. Some charge for licensing, some don't. But what you find is that these days, there are a lot more regulations. Truth is, you don't own that piece of content until you do. You're advertising it. Uh, the same way that you would advertise on television. But do you own that TV, that, that network? No, you don't. <laughs> you can't just do anything uh, with that piece unless you license it. So if you want to repurpose that content, 
make sure it has one been agreed on that the influencer is happy for you to do that and that they are um and also you're getting what you need out of that and it needs to be in contract uh how long is going to be licensed for which channels is going into you can't just simply license a piece of content uh and not have it licensed for the right platforms you can't just put it on your website as well as on paid ads as well as on tv like you've got a different license for all three so you've got to make sure you have the right channels covered and for how long you want to license it for and in the same way even if you haven't licensed any of that content to make sure that you have it written down in your contract for how long you want that content to be up for because if your campaign is running for a month next thing you know that content is out the month after because influencer is not obliged to leave the content there it's only for as long as your campaign is running unless you have specified so it could be that they leave it there because it's got incredible engagement and they may want to show it to other people and boost their page but it could also be that actually didn't perform very well it brings their engagement rates down so i might as well just delete it and the crazy thing with organic i mean you're paying for it but organic content unless you boost it is that sometimes it picks up a lot later on so you don't want that content to disappear even if you don't repurpose it for all the channels so in a way you need to make sure that that content is going to be up for at least a year Okay, at least a year. Okay, cool. I would say at least a year. Yeah. I mean, it it could be 6 months depending on what you're uh running outside, but nothing under 6 months because it's crazy how especially with TikTok, it's crazy how things pick up months later. I kind of want to talk a little bit about sort of white listing because it kind of leads on nicely from licensing, but also it, it it's a really nice call back to that that conversation around trust. and then Lisa's nicely into talking about sort of you know amplification of of influencer marketing. Can you just talk us through you know what is whitelisting, you know what are the benefits and and you know what why it's you know I suppose where brands want to get to really. Whitelisting essentially is when you get access to that creators let's call it business page advertising um page like how you have the meta business Facebook business. You get the same with a creators page and you can advertise through their channel. so you be hosting page content on their channel and you have access to all tools so that you set up the campaign and also you get the insights from it obviously there's a lot of trust involved around that that is an actual feature so it's not like you're going to get their login password details and you know just take over of their account so it's not it's not as crazy as that but obviously it needs to have complete trust between the influencer and the company because at the end of the day you have access to posting on their page it works in a lot of ways because it comes as a bit more of an authentic piece as as opposed to coming just as a normal ad on facebook or something but it's still an ad so there's a difference there between whitelisting and actually building a camping piece on an influencer's channel that's posted by the creator and integrated and So it really depends on what you want to do. If you just want a paid piece that's got a bit more of a human factor but you still want that paid campaign feel to it, yeah, whitelisting is great. But if you're building more of a trust campaign, then actually I don't think it's the best approach. I think if you want your your ads to have a bit of a more for native and human feel, then you can always if you're not quite there with whitelisting, you can always go down the user generated content path as well, right? Absolutely. I don't think it's any secret that Again, sort of citing and looking at TikTok, we're seeing you know a lot of brands are are working with influencers, you know, getting them to create user generated content and then promoting that via paid means on on TikTok, taking it and putting it onto influencer and you know YouTube and various other channels as well. And you know we've got a case study coming out on this that we've we've done with a client, but you know the, the results were strikingly obvious. You know, user generated native content outperformed you know a bespoke ad being created. you know a bespoke video ad is probably the best way of putting it to a certain degree there's a traditional way to obviously crank up conversion rates on your paid activity user generated content's a great way to amplify and crank up you know your your paid efforts as well if we circle back into a bit more of UGC i find it so funny to say circle back these days as well there's so much um so many jokes around it about you know like corporate oh yeah yeah talk. I'll go back. Yeah, every time I say it, I cringe myself. Um, but circling back to it, 
um, <laughs> the thing with UGC as well is work really well for um, awareness pieces and campaigns on a tight budget um, because you still get that human factor. You can still repurpose that content. In fact, it is to be repurposed because what people don't quite click about UGC is that that is not going to be posted on an influencer's channel. That is going to be posted on your channel. And the licensing fees are, are a given. <laughs> uh, that's the content. You're actually buying that content. You own that content. Uh, obviously, that you own it for so long. Obviously, you own it for certain channels. It's not like you can just, oh, yeah, I'll just get a UGC creator to create this piece for me. Uh, and I'll own it forever. And I can put it on TV and on the tube. No, it's, it's not like that. You still have to license it to an extent. But it's for you to use as opposed to an influencer piece that is for them to post and perhaps you can license it. The thing with UGC is that because that creator is not posting it on their channels, one, they don't necessarily need to be an influencer. They can just be someone that's really good at content production and can showcase a service. And there's a lot of those people these days, especially with TikTok. And the second thing is because you're not advertising on their channels, it's like what people forget about influencer marketing often is that you're paying for a couple things. You're paying for the content production value. You're paying for their channel use and you're paying for their audience. The bigger the audience gets, uh, obviously the bigger the fees and the higher the production value, obviously the higher the fees. Sometimes someone doesn't have that big of a following, but their production value is so great that obviously their fees are going to be high and vice versa. In this sense, you're only paying for the production value. And sometimes you don't need that high quality of a production value. You just need someone that can talk really well and that can present that product slash service uh, in a great way. So you catch people's attention, which is what pay struggles with sometimes. You have a banner ad or a, a small animation video. People just scroll straight away. But the minute you see a person's face there, it's a bit different. So you purchase that content to go into certain channels. And for that reason, because you're not paying for the fees to be advertised on someone else's channel, it becomes a lot cheaper. Sometimes you have influencers that are also part-time UGC creators. So you're not going to buy the content on their page and then license it. You're just going to buy the content piece for you to utilize it elsewhere. They're not going to post it on their page. And it's going to be cheaper to do it that way, but you still can use of their face. And people sometimes are still going to recognize it. Uh, it's just not going to go on their channel. So I really recommend, depending on the budget that the client has, sometimes I think it's a lot more effective because you can boost it. Uh, you still get that human factor. Uh, it's a lot easier to explain a product or a service when someone's talking about it. And if you can get some creators that are not huge, but well-known enough, to create UGC pieces for you, uh, people are still going to recognize them, even if it's not on their channel. The other benefit that kind of crossed my mind as well is you've got a fixed cost with obviously production of the UGC content, but by using, utilizing that and then putting paid behind it, putting some cash behind it, you've got guaranteed distribution as well. So it minimizes some, some of the risk as well with, you know, if there isn't enough engagement or it doesn't get the reach that you want, this kind of hedges your bets a little bit, as, a little bit as well. Yeah, I mean... You can still, and this goes back into contracting and licensing, you can still boost a creator's piece of content without whitelisting it. Like you don't necessarily have to have access to it, but you can ask for it to be boosted. Obviously, you have to have budget to do that because it's not going to come out of the creator's pocket. But that all goes into contracting because some creators don't allow for brands to do that. So you can't come in the middle of the campaign and go, oh, can I boost that content? Because I see it's performing well. So if we put some money behind it, it's really going to go crazy. The creator's going to go, no, I don't want my content to come out as sponsored on people's pages uh, because that's not good for me. And you can't do that. And you could have leverage off of that. So make sure you, it's in your contract that you can do that if you want to. <laughs> uh, and that you have had that conversation with your creator. So you don't put things in the contract that you haven't spoken about, obviously. I kind of also want to touch upon about the use of influencer marketing at, I suppose, different stages in a company's life cycle. The obvious place to start is, you know, with, with that go-to-market piece. How do you think influencer marketing changes when a, a brand goes from their go-to-market or their launch 
through to once one that once they start scaling and they're in their growth stage. I think that's the case of, for example, you still see brands like American Express. They did quite a big influencer piece not that long ago, where they had a bunch of influencers just do integrated pieces with their um, business platinum card. Everyone knows American Express. <laughs> like it's not really about awareness of the brand itself at that point, is it? But I guess in a way is how do you then remain relevant? And I think at this point it's when you start looking more into trends, creators that are ascending in your niche at that point in time. And the once again, the really creative campaigns, I think just having someone go and create a dedicated piece of content explaining what the brand is, it's useless for someone that's already established themselves but you want to remain relevant in people's minds and you want to become the 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 first company they think of i mean coca-cola is still producing ads but you know who coca-cola is so i guess the same rule applies for influencer marketing you got to keep up with the times and constantly evolve with the industry i suppose also to a certain extent as well that go-to-market phase is also you know very very much focused on test and learn and, and working out what's working and that optimization piece that we spoke about earlier. And then obviously everything you've just said about sort of remaining relevant. My mind straight away goes towards, you know, when you think about growth, you think about scaling, you know, client receives, you know, their next round of funding and it's significantly more than what they had before. And they say, look, you know, the influencer piece is working really, really well. How do we now scale that? You know, how do we do more of it? You know, what does that look like? Okay, let's say you created an awareness piece first. Let's talk about someone that's just establish themselves into the market. I think after that, it's about creating pieces at once you understand what creators work for you and what audiences are engaging. It's really upscaling that content and making sure not only you remain relevant in the eyes of those audiences so that they keep you first in mind, but also that you keep reinventing uh, yourself because you know one day Gen Z grows up one day millennials grow up and then there's the next generation that will come make use of investing for 18 year olds or you know travel cards for like your audience two years ago they used to travel all the time are now the months of the present and you gotta talk to other people but they don't relate to the same campaigns or the same creators or the same way to to speak to people really if you think about other brands uh let's say outside of the fintech space even think about abercrombie and fitch they had a completely different approach 10 years ago and they they didn't use well not even 10 i'd say 15 years ago and they didn't use influencer marketing because it wasn't that much of a thing but they used what was the early stages of influencer marketing they used really popular people in schools to dress with abercrombie and fitch and then make the brand popular amongst not public private schools and it became like word of mouth amongst oh the popular kids are wearing it i want to wear it too i want to buy into abercrombie and fitch because if i buy abercrombie and fitch i will become well, not I will become popular, but I'm buying into that lifestyle. The whole the whole thing that created influencer marketing, essentially the popular kids off the internet selling products, that didn't last very long because it became uncool to beat that. And there was all sorts of issues involved with Abercrombie and Fitch and, and their ethics. They recently reinvented themselves and everyone knows of Abercrombie and Fitch. That is not the problem. But how do they then establish themselves with a new face into a new market, talking with a new generation? Because they didn't change who their consumer base is. It's still young people, college kids, um, high school kids. But those people, they, they change their minds. So I think what brands need to keep in touch with is really those different trends and what works and what doesn't. And constantly, as I said, remain relevant and I think as well with new generations you have new creators and 
a creator that worked for your brand a couple of years ago may not work the same now. Sometimes that shift doesn't even take a couple of years. It can take a couple of months. The one thing that happens as well is, unfortunately, the internet has something called cancel culture. If we go back into contracting, then you'd be covered not to get into any scandals. But sometimes creators that seems very safe uh, get canceled for some reason. And even if your partnership was working and you don't get affected by it, you won't want to work with them again in the future. So who covers that space? Or even if nothing actually happens with a creator, they're people. What if they all of a sudden decide that they don't want to be on the internet anymore? that they're going to take a break, take a hiatus. I've seen that happen so many times and you can't rely on that partnership anymore and you need to find someone new and you need to once again create a basis and become relevant amongst that audience. So I think it's never ending cycle. Leading on from the scale piece, you know, there's a, you know, a lot of companies have the intention that, you know, once they grow to a certain size, they want to start, you know, launching into new territories. How can influencers unlock a new territory for for a brand? And then also, you know, what are the nuances that brands need to look out for when working with influencers in new geographies? First things first, influencer market changes a little bit depending on where you are. Not to say that it's completely different, but the regulations are slightly different. And also how creators interact with campaigns and how audiences interact with campaigns is very different. I can speak a lot about Brazil because that's where I'm from. And not only I have worked in that space, but also I consume a lot of that content. So I know that people interact with creator pieces there in a completely different way that people interact with it in the UK. The engagement there is a lot higher. In Brazil, you get influencers with millions of followers quite easily. Here for someone to have that reach, um, they're either from the old days, they either became a viral sensation, and then you have to also be careful with that, like how much of that is just going viral and how much of that is um, an actually stable audience. Audience. Some of them are, you know, your TV personalities, Love Island contestants, like you don't see creators that big that often here. In Brazil, that's much more common and creators of smaller sizes are usually not considered for campaigns as much as they would have been here. For that reason, you get all sorts of different prices, you get all sorts of different interactions. So the first thing you need to keep in mind is that the market is different and what you're going to get here is not what you're going to get there and vice versa. And then two, quite obviously as well, and this is cultural what works here in terms of a content piece is not necessarily what's going to work there. Trends are not necessarily the same. Uh, although with TikTok, that's changing a little bit, I feel like, uh, because a lot of things are becoming worldwide. But obviously, languages change. You have these things of audios becoming really trendy and people creating whole campaigns around audios. At times, they work because English, you know, it's the world's language. But at times they don't land in other places because the jokes don't quite land. Regulations are different as well. So if we're talking about fintech, we need to pay attention to that in other countries. I'm sure people know that, but that also applies to the influencer market. And yeah, essentially, it's the same as opening a business elsewhere. Everything's going to be slightly different and the influencer market is no no different to that. I would say the one advantage that... Um influencer probably has overpaid well there's obviously a number of advantages uh, as there are disadvantages but one of the key sort of advantages that i see is probably the language piece you know you can pick up a, a you know let's take spanish you know i think that's probably a good example a, you know a spanish influencer is going to have reach not just in spain but then probably also in latin america as well and assuming your product is in a position from a regulatory perspective that you can onboard users from you know anywhere in the world you know, latching onto the right Spanish-speaking influencers, for example, could open up an entire continent for you, um, yeah. you know, with, without, you know, any additional effort. I suppose, you know, that would be true of, of, of English to a certain extent as well. I mean, there's always going to be nuances within that, but there's probably opportunities yeah. there that, that can be leveraged. In, in terms of language and content production, per se, I would definitely agree to that. I think the one thing that you, you need to be quite careful about is, I'll repeat myself here, but the trends 
And as you said, the nuances and how things lend are quite different country to country. I see a lot of um, content that I consume and then I'm like, oh, this is brilliant. And then my partner looks at it and he's like, I don't get it. I absolutely don't get it. And I'm like, well, this is incredible. Um, but it makes sense in, in, my, in my culture and what people consume there. So even if the language is the same, I'm not too sure that translates in every case. But in terms of as long as you have a team that understands that market and you can create the brief correctly, then yes, that applies. We kind of touched upon this about established brands. You know, you, you gave Abercrombie and Fitch as an example. But just sort of looking at more established firms that are doing sort of new product launches and, um, you know, looking to build communities. Do you think the tack there is is any different from, you know, what you've previously spoken about at all? You know, if we had, say, I don't know, Starling Bank or Monzo, for example, decided to to launch a, a wealth management solution. Do you think the way that they would tackle their influence campaign would be vastly different from, you know, the usual course of business? Um, slightly because I think the trust is already established. Perhaps you don't know the product, the service being offered this time around, but I trust Monzo, for example, I, I'm, a, I'm a Monzo user. So I'm like, I have no questions that Monzo knows what they're doing. It's never failed me. So I think that part, you kind of got it covered. It's more about becoming relevant in that field that they haven't tackled yet. And also making sure people know it exists <laughs> so you know it's not only becoming front of mind but it, it becomes once again an awareness piece because yes i know about monzo you don't need to try and convince me to trust it but what is that i, I didn't know monzo did that do, do they so then it, it becomes once again an awareness piece and then i guess after that we circle back into remaining relevant in that in that area what do you think the big trends for 2023 are going to be I think the types of influencers that we've seen recently are going to change slightly. I think recently we've had a lot more, how do we call them without calling them influencers, neither creators. I think, I think we've had people establish themselves as content creators a lot more than influencers these days. I think there's a bit of a stigma behind the word influencer now. And I think that is changing in the industry. I think people are going to look more for high quality production value than just following because there's various ways that you can get that to reach people these days as opposed to just rely on huge followings. As we spoke about whitelisting, you can do all sorts. Essentially, it's it's become an advertising industry and you want the content to be progressive. Other than that, I think there was a a very clean aesthetic about things in the influencer industry for quite a while. People really enjoyed watching people organize their stuff and have very clear skin and very um, all sorts of things. And everything was very correct. I think we're going to shift into more chaos. What that's going to look like, I'm not too sure. And what that means for fintech, we we have to, to keep an eye as to how we can introduce it too because I've I've seen the people call this is really weird to say in the fintech podcast but people used to call it the clean girl aesthetic uh, this type of content on the internet uh, and I can see that it's going to shift and I've seen a lot of uh, especially digital cards using of that aesthetic uh, to promote amongst um, influencers but if that isn't going to work anymore what does that chaos translate to? Yeah, I suppose that what that artificial look and feel is going to slowly, uh, you know, demise. I suppose there's, there's a lot of Instagram versus reality stuff going on at the moment, isn't there? That 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 seems to be trending. And I think are people more sort of heading towards reality now? Oh, yeah, I, th- I think we've gone through that already. And I think especially with people migrating from Instagram to TikTok and Gen Z taking over, because before you had like very curated photos and all sorts. And these days people are just dumping. It, it's funny because there's the thing it's like, it's the curation of something that's not meant to be curated you have people posting that they call a photo dump and they just post loads of photos that are meant to be random and quite in the moment you have the rise of be real and all sorts but it's actually very curated you probably have 20 of those photos in your camera roll and they pick the one where the book looks a bit authentic 
but I mean more in terms of I think I think that transition has already been made. Uh, it's a lot more difficult these days to have very curated content be the center of attention. It's usually the other way around. People are looking for more humane pieces, high value still. But I think in terms of what they actually look like and the type of creators people interact with, that is going to change. So unless creators reinvent themselves, we're going to see a new wave of creators coming out and, you know, kind of transitioning. And I suppose, you know, a good way to, to sort of wrap up today's conversation, you know, what, what have been your favorite campaigns so far this year? I will repeat myself because I am obsessed with Newbank and Will at the minute. I think they're doing great pieces. They're getting a lot of uh, Brazilian creators to to do vlogs and all the sorts and include their brands on it. Uh, it's been amazing. Definitely go check it out if you don't know who those are. Outside of the spectrum, I think, oh, I think Dunkin' Donuts recently reinvented themselves on TikTok. Earlier this year, not recently, recently, but like April to June, sort of, I just saw them popping everywhere and, and people were just crazy about Dunkin' Donuts. I was like, this is not new. <laughs> what, what's the crazy about? So whatever they did there, it stuck to people's minds. I think shares have done um, some really cool um, influencer stuff this year. We, we've got um, Alec, who, who's actually heading up the influencer team at Shares, joining us on the podcast, I think, this week. Now that you say, because my mind goes blank when someone asks me a question on a dot, I am obsessed with them, but not just from an influencer perspective, because I don't even think I would call that influencer, but they had Ed Westwick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In their, I, kudos to them. That was brilliant. And it was so well curated. So see, that was high production, but that still works very much. Yeah. It lended very well. I think that, I think they've done a really good job in, in terms of, you know, everything from, from picking the influencers, you know, coming up with something like they, they've done that partnership. And then also, I think the distribution has been really, really solid as well. Um, yeah. But cool. Um, I think we'll I think we'll leave it there. We've only been talking for you know a good hour and a half. Um, Come on, you didn't ask me what my book is or like what am I well, reading? I was, I, was, I was getting to that. I was getting to that. So as we traditionally do, a quick fire round. Other than the the FML podcast, what other podcasts do you have on your playlist at the moment? I listen to <laughs> Call Her Daddy. I beg your pardon. Which <laughs> I swear it's not a weird podcast. It's just interviews. I can't. It's just interviews. I can't. I can't say. I can't explain myself. Yeah, I know. Controversial. Um, I listen to. This is gonna sound really weird because it's in Portuguese, but it's um, milkshake chamado Vanda, which in translation would be a milkshake called Vanda. It's uh, an entertainment podcast. And that's about it right now. I think I then listen to various random episodes of podcasts in marketing and spirituality. An interesting mix. I know, yeah. This, this is the mind of someone that works in the influencer industry. <laughs> Constant various topics going around. Are you reading any books at the moment? Is there is there one that you'd recommend? I'm not. I'm going to be very honest with you. My only interest outside of work right now is the World Cup. Ah, interesting. <laughs> I, I can't lie. It's that time of the year for me. Every four years, that's my my personality becomes the World Cup. How, how, how do you think, uh, you know, what do you think Brazil's chances are? We're going to get it. When does this podcast come out? <laughs> Just at the right time to uh, do one of those... This age badly posts. <laughs> Can we? Mm-mm, mm-mm. You're gonna. You're gonna. I'm gonna predict this. Uh, it's gonna be Brazil versus. I'm gonna throw it out there. Brazil versus France. Okay, that that'll be interesting. That'll be that'll be a what a 2002 2006 rematch. I can't remember. I'd say three to two with penalties. Okay, we will see. We will see. If not, wait until the World Cup ends and I'm going to do this prediction again, knowing the results. And then you're going to pretend I've come to the fourth. <laughs> that clairvoyant. 
See, I predict trends. Trust us. <laughs> Sign up with us. Yeah. What's your favorite fintech app? My favorite. Uh, I'm going to talk about them again. It's Monzo. It's the one I use every day. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm, I'm a Starling Bank person. I'm going to be very honest with you. I used no digital banks until I had to go to Brazil three years ago now. And my bank there wasn't working for some reason. And I knew that I had a problem with my account. So I have to take a card from him. I was like, there's no way I'm going to pay those fees. So my partner was like, why don't you have a Monzo? You don't pay the, the extra fees when internationally. I'm like, oh, tell me about that. And since then, I love that little thing. But it's, it's all I use in terms of digital banks. So yeah. What's the best bit of life advice you've ever received? Wash your clothes in little bags so you can put a load with colourful and white in the same wash. That changed my life. That's impeccable. <laughs> <laughs> what to say to that? It's true. It it was it changed my life because I've never had enough wives to do a single wash, so they just kept piling up until I could. And now I know what to do with it. Cool. I will pass on that information. <laughs> I'm glad you are the, the brilliant mind of the person behind all these campaigns. Yeah. Um, and then last question, what, what's one thing I haven't asked that you felt that I should have? I feel like I'll say this and then I'll regret saying it because then I'll have to think of an answer. But I'd say, who's my favorite creator at the moment? Who's your favorite creator at the moment? <laughs> but then I actually have to think. Who's my favorite creator at the moment? Oh, Uncle Roger. Oh, I love Uncle Roger. He's hilarious. Yeah, he's, he never ceases to amaze me. And now there is a, he's doing a tour. And I need to go see that. I love the way that he uh, he critiques is probably the best way to put it. <laughs> yeah, and and the, and I love to see him roasting people making rice because we also take rice very seriously in Brazil, and the atrocities are seen in this country. Look, Indian, we we you know rice is a staple, right? You know, exactly. it, it's frowned upon if you can't cook rice, as far as yeah. I'm concerned, anyway. Yeah, if we can ever create a campaign where Uncle Roger is somehow involved talking about rice and how to invest better, that will be my ideal one. We've got to make, we'll make it happen. Thank you. <laughs> Julia, it's been lovely having you on today. Thank you for your time. No, thank you. I'll speak to you soon. The FML Podcast is brought to you by Growth Gorilla. To find out how our marketing growth experts can boost your fintech's growth, head to growthgorilla.co.uk and make sure to search for the FML podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify or anywhere else podcasts are found. Don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Growth Gorilla, thanks for listening.